Hey everybody, thanks for listening, and as always, thanks to our sponsor, KnowledgeBand, the leader in human performance improvement training and technologies. If you want the most advanced safety technology adapted from the human performance principles of the nuclear and aviation industries, then KnowledgeBand is error reduction that works. They were the first company to tie human performance to serious injury and fatality or SIF precursors. Learn more at knowledgevine.com. In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Today, my guest on the show is Ryan Sitton. Uh, Ryan is the uh, founder and CEO of a company called Pinnacle and also a former Texas Railroad Commissioner. Ryan, thanks for coming on the show today. Glad to be with you, Russell. Well, as I already told you, I really appreciate you taking the time. Some of my listeners may be tired of hearing me say it, but this OGGN HSE podcast has been ranked as one of the top 10 best oil and gas podcasts to listen to. And the reason is because of the quality of guests like yourself. So thank you again. Glad to do it. Okay. So Ryan, a couple of months ago, we had your chief strategy officer, Dr. Jeff Krimmel on the podcast. We discussed, actually the title of the podcast was Leveraging Data to Improve Performance, Productivity, Reliability, and HSE. And we talked about your company, Pinnacle's approach of using data to drive reliability that enhances process safety and environmental impact. So before we go any further, why don't you remind our audience about Pinnacle and give us an overview from your perspective as founder and CEO? Sure. Well, I'll try to tell, since you already had Jeff on, I'll try to tell the sort of 30,000 foot founder level view, and then we can answer any specifics that you'd like. You know, when I started Pinnacle 17 years ago, at that time, most of the industry, I'm talking upstream, midstream, downstream, refining, even petrochemical plants, pipelines, oil and gas installations. The name of the game really was building better facilities. So in other words, you made money in the oil and gas business if you had the best stuff. And if it was upstream, if you had the best rock and you had the best wells, if it was pipelines, if you had the best pipelines and the best locations, you had the best lift stations, had the best gathering facilities, it was having the best stuff. Well, over the last, I would say, 20 years, that has changed because in general, everyone kind of has the same stuff. They don't like to admit it, right? They also, oh, I, we got better class of this. We're, there's so many standards out there and so many industry norms out there. And at the same time, a lot of the stuff that was on the bubble went away. In fact, during COVID, I think we had six or seven refineries in the United States shut down because if you were on the bubble, you were out. So you had a lot of fairly consistent assets. And so where people have said, used to be that you either had the best cars, you drove your cars better than everybody else, or your cars didn't break. I'm using cars as a metaphor here for oil and gas operators. Right? Sure, right. Well, since everyone's car, it's kind of like stock cars. In general, everyone's cars are about the same. With advanced process controls and other automated systems, it's not up to the operator as much anymore. So now if your stuff breaks, you lose if somebody else's stuff doesn't break. And the nature of the problems that we deal with these days are incredibly complicated. When you look at the numbers of different pieces of equipment that it takes to make a gathering facility run or a lift station run, certainly a refinery or a big offshore platform, we're talking about thousands of pieces of machinery that all have to work together. They're so incredibly sophisticated. What our company does is brings together all of the information on all these assets into very sophisticated models 
that are easy to use, that help people decide what maintenance do I do, what repairs do I do, what inspections should I do, and what upgrades should I do. And as simple as that sounds, that often is the difference between winners and losers in big oil and gas. And so you're in all aspects of oil and gas, upstream, midstream, petrochemical plants, that sort of thing. I didn't realize you had been doing it for 17 years. Yeah. In fact, a bit about us, Russell, people think of us sometimes as a company that's in oil and gas because that's my personal background. But our company, we've got big customers in mining. We got big customers in chemicals. We got big customers in baby food formula. We got big customers in beer manufacturing, you know, beer bottling. We got big customers in lumber mills. So any big, complex industrial facility, that's our customer base. Just so happens the biggest chunk of it's in oil and gas. Well, and you say your background is oil and gas, and that's actually what I wanted to move into because I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in your tenure as Texas Railroad Commissioner. Yeah. And speaking of your background, we met when I was chairman of the API Houston chapter. In fact, I think this was pre-COVID. I was also chairman during COVID. But anyway, that's another story. Yeah. You were one of our keynote speakers at one of our monthly luncheons. And I know a little bit about your background. And I got to go ahead and get this out of the way. I got to preempt it because I know you'll get to it one way or the other. You went to some podunk university that nobody's ever heard of. Tell us about that. Whoop. Yeah, as a matter of fact, so I, <laughs> to, I uh, went to Texas A&M, got my mechanical engineering degree there. And one interesting anecdote about that in the Railroad Commission, I was the first engineer to serve as a railroad commissioner in 50 years. And oh wow. People are like, how is that the case? I mean, this is like a born in all the jobs and all of politics. You'd think that'd be the one where engineers would go, but unfortunately, getting elected isn't always about being the most qualified. So I think we don't get a lot of engineers in that job anymore. Uh, no, they're not generally uh, very political, but you have a saying about Texas A&M, so go ahead and say it. Which one? The world's finest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I do this. I love to get the crowd fired up. So I'll go somewhere and I give a speech and I say, yeah, I graduated from the finest academic institution on earth, Texas A&M. And people, always, I get a mix of reactions, right? The Aggies go, woo. <laughs> you the got the whoop, yeah. Boo, right? <laughs> Not just Longhorns. Everybody else goes, boo. Okay. All right. Well, let's get back to the Railroad Commission. And since we do have a worldwide audience, I'm going to have to ask you this question. I know you've been asked it a hundred times, but what do railroads have to do with oil and gas? Uh, here, Russell begins the history lesson. Yeah. And I'll try Give to give a short lesson. version. It's really an interesting story. It's 1890. I think, or 1890-something, 91. And railroads have become the dominant industry across the United States and certainly in Texas. I mean, you got to imagine, by the time railroads became really commonplace, if you didn't move your product via a railroad, you couldn't compete. Railroads controlled everything. They were the way that anybody got any sort of good or market from farm goods to manufactured goods to wheels for carriages, anything. If you moved everything to the railroad. So the railroad became the sort of you know, monopoly of every industry in the United States. The Texas government figures out, man, these railroad guys are really powerful. They need to be regulated. So they created the Texas Railroad Commission in 18, I think it was 91. And the Railroad Commission's first job was to set railroad rates. So what a railroad could charge to haul a bushel of grain or a load of lumber, whatever. Fast forward about 20 years, and it's early 1909, 1910, 1911. And all of a sudden, this new product had come on the market called oil. That back in 1890, no one was, I mean, it was on the market. You know, oil industry in the United States really started in 1850. First refinery, I think, was 1860-something. It wasn't a common thing. By 1900, you know, we had Spindletop, 1901, and so oil was all over the place. 
And the Texas legislature figures out, man, we got to regulate this oil thing now. Well, it turns out most of the oil is moved via train. So it's natural to have the people who regulate trains also regulate oil. So in 1915 was when the Railroad Commission got its first responsibility for regulating the oil industry. From 1915 over the next hundred years until today, the Railroad Commission's capacity over oil and gas regulation expanded into how you drill wells, how you manage pipelines, how much you can produce. And at the same time, the responsibility for train regulation left the Railroad Commission and went to the Department of Transportation. So today, the Railroad Commission has no responsibility for trains and only oil and gas, but it happened over a period of a hundred years. The name just never changed. How about that? So exactly what does the Railroad Commission do as far as regulating oil and gas? What its primary function? Yep. You want to drill an oil or natural gas well in Texas. You want to build a pipeline to move that fluid. You want to do mining operations. A lot of people don't know any surface mining, any mining operations in the state of Texas. All of that gets permitted by the Railroad Commission, and you have to follow the Railroad Commission's regulations when you do it. So you want to drill an oil well, you have to come to the Railroad Commission to get a permit to drill it, and you have to drill that well, case that well, operate that well, produce out that well, all following the rules that the Railroad Commission puts out. So in short, anything oil and gas related is both controlled by and regulated by the Railroad Commission inside the state of Texas. Okay. And you were a commissioner for, I think, six years? Six years. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this virtual. You're in Pasadena right now. Yes, sir. Pasadena, Texas. That's where the uh, Pinnacle campus is. And I had hoped my schedule would allow us to record face-to-face there at your campus, but I wound up being misplaced by a couple of hours. Anyway, thanks for doing it virtual, but you're truly an oil and gas expert and you're an accomplished speaker. And so I want to visit with you a little bit about oil and gas from your oil and gas background and from your political background. And uh, let's talk about oil and gas as it relates to HSE. And let's start with your perspectives on oil and gas and the environment. I have a saying that the oil and gas industry is not the problem with the environment. It's the solution to the environment. You got any thoughts on that? I do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to loosely quote a friend of mine, Alex Epstein. Have you ever had him on the show or have you ever talked to Alex Epstein? No, but maybe you should introduce me. Okay, I will. You know who Alex Epstein is? He wrote The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Right, right. So in Alex's book, at one point, he explores this topic a little bit. And Alex, a lot of people don't know this about Alex. He's actually a philosophy major by degree. That's what he studies. I think his degree is in philosophy. And Alex says the problem with the environment is not oil and gas. So the problem with the environment is people. And he says, that's not Alex's opinion. He says, if you listen to all these environmentalists, they complain about the impact mankind is having on the environment. And Alex will tell you, I'm not going to argue that. Mankind is absolutely having an impact on the environment. In fact, the really easiest way to make the earth not be impacted by humans is just to remove the humans. (laughs) He says, now, assuming that we all accept that that's not really a realistic path forward, we're not going to go out and say, sorry, everybody, you can only have one kid and we'll just start diminishing the population of mankind over the next, you know, 100 years. He says, then the only real question is, how do we manage mankind's impact on the environment in a way that enables mankind to thrive, right? Like species go extinct all the time. Some due to things mankind has done, deforestation and other things. Some have nothing to do with mankind. So his point is really all we're all trying to do is manage the way man impacts the world around us. And I think this is what kind of gets to your point. If you accept that humans are going to be here and you accept that humans are going to sprawl, and you accept that those humans are going to have an impact on the world, then the question is, oh, and you also accept one other thing. Every human out there wants to live a better life. 
We got to accept yeah, exactly. that. That is his main premise and that, that's yeah. the moral argument, what we've done for society. Yeah. You assume every human out there wants to live a better life. I, every summer, go to Zambia. I say every summer. I didn't go during COVID, but three of the last, I guess, five or six summers, depending on how COVID hit, I went to Zambia to do a mission trip there. So you fly into Dubai and then from Dubai into Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia. And if you're in the middle of downtown Zambia, it feels not quite like New York or Houston or Austin, but you're in a city, a developed city. You go an hour outside Lusaka and you're in third world country, no power or very little power. You're in slums. And those people there want to see their lives upgraded, just like Americans' lives were upgraded 200 years ago, right? And let's say you're talking to a young Zambian boy. And he's, let's say, three or four years old or five years old, six years old. And he says, I dream of living with indoor water and plumbing, indoor sewage, because the average Zambia doesn't have that. I dream of having lights that come on every time you flip the light switch. And you say, man, for those people, how do you get them the energy? You can say, well, we'll just install all wind and solar there. And you say, well, that's clearly not going to work. In fact, it didn't even work in Texas during the freeze. I was going to say exactly. (laughs) And if you assume that it can work and it can be an absolutely, you know, I'll say, you know, Texas generates something like 30 gigawatts of electricity or power generation as our capacity. Man, the amount of controls and smart grids and redundant power we have to have to make that work, that's only going to work in a developed first world country. So to start saying to people in Zambia, yeah, you can't have access to the easy energy that we did. What do you mean easy energy? I mean, carrying a gallon of gas. That takes very little sophistication to carry a gallon of gas around and use that energy. But you can't use it. You have to invest the billions that it will take to build the smart grids and the windmills and the solar farms to get the amount of power you want. That's just not practical. That's unrealistic for us to expect that people to do that. The problem, I think, is with the people who only sit in the middle of a first world country in Europe or the United States and assume the rest of the world has come through the same transition we have and has the same amount of technology and advancement that we have. And that they have the same amount of money we do, which, they, of course, we don't. And so that gets back to your point. If someone said, Ryan, I think oil and gas is not the future, I'd say, well, you're basically telling six-sevenths of the world's population that you're never going to get to experience the lifestyle that we do. That's really what you're saying. Sorry, poor people in Africa and Asia and parts of China and you know, parts of even Siberia and, and Russia and, and South America. Sorry, you can't have the lifestyle that we've had because we got to use the cheap, easy energy, but you can't. And I'm sorry, that's just unacceptable. So since that's the case, the next question is, well, then how do you manage and allow them access to the easy, affordable, developable energy that is hydrocarbons that we all got to benefit from for the last 150 years? That's a different question. And it's not just an HS&E question. It's a moral question. And it's a human race question. That's exactly right. So let's get back over here to the United States. The oil and gas industry, and I'm sure you, with your 17 years at Pinnacle and then being on the Railroad Commission, we're doing a lot of great things with regards to the environment, right? Oh, yeah. When I was at the commission, we had a big issue come up with flaring. And people were like, oh, man, flaring was out of control. And look, it was. I mean, I'm not arguing that it should have been more controlled per se, but let's assume that you do. If you looked, when we got to the point where natural gas was basically free, it was down to a dollar. Yeah, right. MMBTU and the price of oil was something like $100 a barrel, people would absolutely flare off the gas to get the oil. And we had really a lot of flaring going on in Texas. And I think at one point, I'm going to say this was circa 2018 or 2019, flaring levels in Texas, the amount of natural gas that was burnt off to produce a barrel of oil was something like five times what it had been just 10 years earlier. So it really was up there. At the same time, Russell, 
So people were saying, you know, what we need to do is we need to control oil production and force. This was a, a common sort of environmentalist structure. What you do is to force producers to capture the gas, not allow them to flare it. Now, unfortunately, there weren't gathering lines out to all these locations. So if you said you cannot flare gas anymore, what would happen? It, it would have shut down. It would have curtailed some new oil development. The argument I made is, well, you could do that. You could say that, hey, we're not going to allow flaring. And it will force operators to slow down their oil development until gas systems can get out there. But at the end of the day, people are still going to buy that oil. So the fact that we don't produce it in Texas, are going to buy it from somewhere. Where will they produce? Where will they buy it from? Well, it turns out a lot of the excess capacity was sitting in Iran because we had just had those sanctions. Iran, even when Texas was at its peak, I think it was 2019, and I said it was five times the amount that we were flaring per barrel as we had been just five or 10 years earlier. At that same time, we were 5X what we had been. Iranians were three and a half times higher than that. So we complain with this narrow view about what's happening in the United States. We develop oil and natural gas so much more cleanly and environmentally sensitively than our counterparts in South America, in the Middle East, even in parts of places like Malaysia. So to your point, Russell, we're doing phenomenal things in the United States. We develop, if you want to make a barrel of oil or a BTU of gas as clean as possible, you make it right here in the United States. Because if we don't make it here, we're buying it from somewhere else. And I guarantee they don't do it near as well as we do. And I tell you something else that isn't talked about enough. We do it much more environmentally responsible on the oil and gas production side than they're actually doing in uh, mining some of these renewable stuff. Now, I don't have expertise in that, but the bit I have read leads me to the same conclusion that there we really regulate this stuff so tightly that it's pretty crazy how good we are at it. Okay. So you mentioned something about all these refineries shutting down during COVID. Mm-hmm. What kind of impact is that going to have? Well, let me, let me try to use some numbers here. And I may get this a little bit wrong, but I think this is close. The United States has roughly, these days, they really have about, we have about 120 refineries in the United States. And those refineries at the peak, which would have been, like you said, 2019, right before COVID, those refineries would process around if they were all running totally wide ass open, they would have refined around 19 million, somewhere between 18 and 19 million barrels a day of crude oil. We had about a million barrels of that refining capacity shut down during COVID. So I think there were six or seven refineries. And we've got another couple that have been announced that just haven't shut down yet. There's this big one right here in Houston, the Lyondell Houston Refinery. I think it's 260,000, 270,000 barrels a day. And they're planning to shut it down. So we're losing capacity. You asked the question, what does that mean for us? Well, in the short run, it doesn't really mean a lot. The United States doesn't use all of its refined product. We refine the equivalent of 18 or 19 million barrels a day of salt cut, 18 million barrels a day of refined product. And we use about 14 of that here. We sell the other four on the market. doesn't mean a lot for us. What it does mean is we are missing out on one of our best exports. When we produce oil here at home or bring it down from Canada, refine it because our refineries run better than anybody else's in the world. Then we sell that refined product on the international market. The net value, you think any sort of economy, the net value, the net return to our economy is really big. So short-term impact, not that big. Long-term impact, man, especially when, look, regardless of your political stance or oil and gas stance, we are going to see more and more transition to to alternative sources of energy. Wind, solar, nuclear, hydroelectric, maybe even fusion reactions and things. Who knows where all we're going to go with power? But the oil and gas demand is not going to go away. It's just going to shift from the United States to other growing areas of the world that don't have the sophistication that we do. So, man... Won't it be cool in another 20, 30 years when half our oil and gas is being exported to places like Zambia who really need it, who don't have the sophistication? So it's a good export for us. 
it's a great cheap energy source for them. Everybody wins. So, you know, we'll see if this incremental, this 5%, 4% of our refining capacity that we lost, we'll see if it really has a profound impact. Overall, though, sure would love to see us maintain strength and leadership in oil and gas globally because the need is there. And we certainly can do it today. And I don't want to see us lose that position. And so with the existing refineries, we can do that or? We can. As I said, our refineries run better than anybody else's in the world. It's not even close. China's run pretty well, not as well as ours. Europe's don't run anywhere near as well as ours do. Mexico's refineries are just terrible. They're a joke. They run. They're just very inefficient. They're down all the time. So the U.S. refineries are second to none. And so my hope is we can maintain that leadership position. And that's your hope. Now, realistically, with what we've got out there in the political arena, I mean, where are we going? I mean, are we going to put ourselves in a position where we have shortages and stuff like that? Like, say, we had in the 70s or whatever, gas lines and that sort of thing? You know, Russell, I always hesitate to crystal ball this, and I'm going to crystal ball this in two ways. In the short run, no. And that's probably that the reason that people pass stupid oil and gas policy is because stupid oil and gas policy usually doesn't hit us consumers in the pocketbook for a while, right? In other words, you can do things that sound really great and sensitive and environmentally friendly today, and they're really not. And all they're going to do is raise the cost of oil and gas. But I don't pay for that right now. I pay for that in like five or seven years, which is why stupid oil and gas policy actually happens. That's why probably any stupid policy happens is because when you don't feel the effects right away, right? Right. So in the short run, I would say that we're probably not going to feel the short run impacts because if there is anything that's going to really hit us in the short run, I don't care what administration you are, you're not going to do it. Biden and the Democrat administration, who are very clearly anti-oil and gas, and you probably have some listeners who are Democrats, and fine, I'm not bagging on Democrats. I'm just saying they haven't made any bones about the fact they're anti-oil and gas. And at the same time, if there's anything that the president does that drives the price of gas up in the short run, he won't do it because he knows that gets him unelected, right? So in the short run, yeah, even to the point of dipping into the strategic oil reserve. Exactly. I mean, I remember when the gasoline prices were really getting high and Biden was on the outside. I'm encouraging gasoline refiners to produce as much as they possibly can. I'm like, man, this is the biggest political stoots I've ever I mean, I mean, it wasn't like six months ago. He was like, we're trying to get off of oil and gas. Now right, I'm right, to right. We're going to shut them down. Yeah, it's just comedic. Now, let's talk long term. There is an interesting self-fulfilling prophecy that happens here. If you make it so hard to develop, whether it's through regulation, it's through market forces. You know, investors got so nervous about oil and gas messages that were coming from the administration, from overseas, that they stopped investing. And it actually drove the amount of capital that was available to oil and gas producers down quite a chunk a year and a half ago. And there was a period, I want to say it was from the back half of 2021, the first half of 2022, maybe it was all of 2022, was the lowest investment we'd seen in oil and gas in like 15 years. It was really low. And what that means is more barrels are not going to come on the market, right? More BTUs of gas are not going to come on the market. When that happens, inevitably, that drives the price up. So if you think about it, you actually can sort of produce a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I go so hard at oil and gas and I regulate oil and gas so hard, I can make it where you don't develop enough of it. The price goes up so high that all of a sudden it does make sense. If you get the gallon of gasoline to $12 a gallon, all of a sudden the economics around wind and solar and electric cars make a lot of sense. At $3 a gallon, it's not even close. So this is the sort of gamesmanship that is going on in politics today. And so I do have this long-term crystal ball that I get nervous about. Will certain elected officials lean into the short-term thinking and short-term reactionism of the average voter and appeal to this 
base that says, hey, let's go ahead and go hard in oil and gas and do it to the point that, man, we stopped developing enough, price goes up. And sure enough, it really does make life hard on us because we don't have oil and gas. Man, the world is a hard place to run. Well, absolutely. And people just have no idea. You know, they think oil and gas and they think gasoline in their cars and that's all there is to oil and gas, you know. Yeah. Oil and gas has something to do with every one of our modern conveniences. You know, if it weren't for oil and gas products, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Right. And people don't realize that. Okay. So, Ryan, again, I really appreciate you coming on. I promised you I wouldn't take more than a half hour of your time. And we're coming up on that half hour. So, uh, before we sign off here, Anything else you got on your mind that you might be passionate about that you want to say? Oh, man, I got a lot of things. I don't know how much oil and gas related they are, but, you know, <laughs> I, I will say something just, and this is an interesting, you didn't ask about it, but I'm a total sidebar, but it's something I really love. So as I said earlier on, I'm not just in the oil and gas business. In fact, I'll go to a lumber mill next week. I'll be at a mining facility in about a month. So I deal in all sorts of industries. One thing I really love about the oil and gas business is the level of entrepreneurism that just seems to just sort of, man, it just resonates all across the industry. From the biggest companies in the world, the Exxons and Chevrons and Shells and BPs, down to the little startup that's just drilling one well or tiny guys operating some tiny refinery in San Antonio. I say that because you think of sort of the spirit of what makes Texas a fun place to be, America a fun place to be, this can-do attitude. Man, I've not seen an industry that more exhibits that or exemplifies that than the oil and gas industry. I'll go back to something that, once again, this seems a bit off topic, but anytime I talk to people oil and gas, there is a narrative out there that there is not opportunity in oil and gas. But if you're a kid coming through school today, don't go into that industry. I'm going to tell you, I just don't think that's true for two reasons. As we already talked about, man, this world is going to run on hydrocarbons as its primary energy source. I think through, I do not think I will live to see a day, and I'm 48 years old and I'm in great health, so I assume I live another 50 years. I don't think in those 50 years we will reach a point where the world runs on another energy source more than hydrocarbons. But more importantly, the lessons you learn working in a can-do industry, let's go out there and get her done. Let's figure out ways we've not done before. Sometimes it's not sexy. Sometimes it's roll your sleeves and get it done. But that kind of approach, man, that serves people in all walks of life. I don't care whether you got a college degree or not. You work in the field or you work in an office. You have a technical background or a service background. Work for a huge company, a small company. And I think that mindset is so prevalent that people underappreciate how valuable that is in the world. So aside from all the technical things, the energy things, the things we already talked about, the one other thing I would say that I'm very proud of, and as I said, my particular area of expertise is certainly reliability of systems and oil and gas predominantly, but man, it is the cultural impacts that a can-do industry brings to the rest of the world. And so I like to celebrate that before I go. Oh, I absolutely. And that's what OGGN is all about. So Ryan, again, really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing these perspectives. And as always, thanks to the audience out there. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you could write us a good review on iTunes, Spotify, or simply the review link that's listed in the show notes, we would really appreciate it. Please tell your friends to listen, post us on LinkedIn and your other social media. And also, folks, if you find this podcast beneficial and we get a lot of nice comments from people who say they do, then make sure you help us keep it up and running by reaching out to our sponsor, Knowledge Vine. 
Uh, their website link and other contact information is also in the show notes. Or you can contact me and I'll get you in touch. Because no matter what level your safety program is on right now, if you want to discover the best human performance improvement training and technologies adapted from the nuclear and aviation industries, then KnowledgeVine is your dependable partner for full-service human performance and safety consulting. KnowledgeVine is error reduction that works. We'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.